Welcome to the weekly podcast of Science and the City, the public gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences, online at scienceandthecity.org. Today is Friday, June 19th, 2009. I'm Alana Rangi. Two-time Pulitzer Prize winner E.O. Wilson is a biologist, researcher, theorist, and naturalist. He is currently University Research Professor Emeritus at Harvard and Honorary Curator in Entomology at the Museum of Comparative Zoology. This week, we're revisiting Science and the City's Two Cultures in the 21st Century Symposium, which was held last month. Here's a broadcast of E.O. Wilson's keynote lecture from the symposium, where he discusses his ideas on bringing the sciences and humanities together. Thank you very much. When I uh, was invited to join you here, I jumped at the chance, and that's what we're talking about, consalience, jumping together. That was the word that was coined by uh, William Hewell in the 1840s, and it meant the coming together of very disparate disciplines and modes of explanation, and then he changed the word slightly. Consalience doesn't compute. It's not a nice sound to it. And so he said, consilience, and that's uh, what I will be speaking of today. And also, I would like to add emphasis to the perception, I'm sure, shared by most or all in this room, that the time has come at long last for a renewal of the Enlightenment, and that this is certainly one of the topics that should be of paramount interest in the future, in science in the humanities, in education, and the spear point should be academies such as the New York Academy of Sciences, and in fact, that is what it is attempting now to fulfill. Since the 18th century, the great branches of learning have been classified uh, into the natural sciences, the social sciences, and the humanities. Today, we have a choice between, on the one hand, trying to make the great branches of learning consilient, that is, coherent and interconnected by cause and effect explanations, or, on the other hand, not trying to make them consilient. Surely, universal consilience is worth a serious try. After all, the brain, mind, and culture are composed of material entities, ultimately, and processes, They don't exist in an astral plane that floats above and outside of the tangible world. The evidence is fragmentary, and in some cases it is still thin. But I believe that it's also a matter of practical urgency to focus on the unity of knowledge. Let me illustrate that claim with an example on the board. This is my Mandela. Think of two intersecting lines forming a cross. Picture the four quadrants thus created this year. Label one quadrant environmental policy, the next ethics, the next biology, and the final one social science. Each of these subjects has its own experts, its own language, rules of evidence, criteria of validation. Now think of each as an island of knowledge, a silo, if you will, in a sea of ignorance. Now, if we focus on more specific topics within each of those quadrants, we see how general theory translates into the analysis of practical problems, and we understand that in each case, we somehow have to learn how to travel 
as clockwise here from one subject to the next in a single discussion. It's necessary to travel the entire circuit. Now move through concentric circles toward the intersection of the disciplines. As we approach this intersection where most real world problems exist, the circuit becomes more difficult and the process more disorienting and contentious. The nub of the problems facing us in scholarship and in education and in daily conversation and problem solving and vexing a great deal of human thought is the general belief that a fault line exists between the natural sciences on one side and the humanities and humanistic social sciences on the other. In other words, very roughly, between the scientific and literary cultures as defined by C.P. Snow in his famous Reed lecture of almost exactly 50 years ago. The solution to this problem, I suggest, is the recognition that this boundary between the two cultures is not a fault line. It is not a permanent epistemological division. It is not a Hadrian's wall, as many uh, would still have it, needed to protect high culture from the reductionist barbarians of science. What we are beginning to at last understand is that this line does not exist at all. It is instead a broad domain of poorly understood material phenomena awaiting cooperative exploration from both sides. Now during the past several decades, borderland disciplines have grown dramatically in the natural sciences, or more precisely in the biological sciences that bridge this intermediate domain, and they are listed here. Cognitive neuroscience, now entering its golden age of the brain sciences, reminding us that what brought the first enlightenment to a uh, shuddering halt was that science was, in the 19th century, really unable to meet the promise of the enlightenment in the 18th century and had to have two centuries of development in order to readdress the whole issue of the combination of great divisions of learning. Then there is behavioral genetics, evolutionary biology, including sociobiology, environmental science. From the social science side now, equally, the bridging disciplines include cognitive psychology and biological anthropology. To an interesting degree, cognitive psychology and biological anthropology are becoming conciliant with the four disciplines just cited. In fact, they are anastomosing with them in cause and effect explanation. And that will be the nature of the examples I'm about to provide you. Why is this conjunction among the great branches of learning important? Because it offers the prospect of characterizing human nature with greater objectivity and precision and exactitude that is the key to human self-understanding. I'm reminded that the great remaining epistemological questions of philosophy, if we may express it this way, uh, have always been the simplest ones that we tend to dodge around and try to reword and, ex uh, and expatiate on uh, without actually stating them. And they are precisely the ones that are inscribed on Paul Gauguin's Tahitian masterpiece, which, and they are, where did we come from? What are we? Where are we going? And then 
could be characterized or boiled down to why we should be concerned with this type of intellectual activity by later authors, including Vercors or Jean Brouillet, who in later years after this painting said that all of man's problems are due to the fact that we do not know what we are and we cannot agree on what to become. And so we need to address that very fundamental question as a part of not just science, not just of humanities, as we would tend to think depending on our orientation, undisturbed by a shutting off of the alarm system and recognize that it is a joint problem. The intuitive grasp then of human nature has been the substance of the creative arts. It's been the underpinning of the social sciences, a beckoning mystery to the natural scientists to grasp human nature objectively, to explore it to its depth scientifically. To grasp its ramifications would be to approach, if not attain, the grail of scholarship and to fulfill the dreams of the Enlightenment. And to do that, we must actually use the concept human nature, which until fairly recently was simply a taboo through much of the social sciences and uh, humanities. There was, in the view of many, no human nature. There was just a blank slate of the, of the brain creating the mind. We now should re-examine it to fulfill the dreams of the Enlightenment. So what is human nature? That is the question. And I would suggest human nature is not the genome which prescribes it. Human nature is not the cultural universal, such as the incest taboo and rites of passage that are the products of human nature. Rather, human nature is the collectivity of what can be called epigenetic rules, the inherited regularities of mental development, what the psychologists call the ensemble of prepared and counter-prepared learning that is hardwired into the brain. These rules are the genetic biases in the way our senses perceive the world, the symbolic coding by which we represent the world, the options that we open to ourselves, and the responses we find easiest and most rewarding to make. In ways that are beginning to come into focus at the physiological and even a few cases the genetic level, the epigenetic rules, alter the way we see and linguistically classify color. They cause us to evaluate the aesthetics of artistic design according to elementary abstract shapes and the degree of complexity. They lead us differentially to acquire certain fears and phobias concerning dangers in the ancient environment of humanity, as from snakes and heights, to communicate with certain facial expressions and forms of body language, the paralinguistic communication that undoubtedly preceded, to bond with infants, to bond conjugally, and so on across a wide range of categories and behavior and thought. Most epigenetic rules are evidently very ancient, dating back millions of years in mammalian and pre-human history. Others, like the stages of linguistic development, are likely uniquely human and probably only hundreds of thousands of years old. Now, I'm going to offer you a series of these epigenetic rules, cautiously, knowing that they need more documentation, testing, knowing they can be challenged, at least in a couple of the key cases, and that they need finite details and applications. So now let me begin with color vision and the way we create color 
vocabularies as a product of what could be called gene culture coevolution. That is, there's a hard wiring that channels the way we build color classification and modes and the increasing complexity of color classification and use of color. Color is fairly well understood now, genetically and physiologically. It begins with the color code cones of the retina, the molecular coding of those cones are well known, and at least some of the mutations that alter it to cause color blindness are understood. These are color receptors, the wavelength receptors of the retina. We know the interneurons now leading back from the eye and the uh, color cones to the geniculate, lateral geniculate nuclei, and on back with information spreading out through the brain, but particularly back to the visual cortex, back to so-called V8 area of the rear of the cortex. And we know that this information is discretized. If you go to a light switch, which is a dimmer switch, and go up and down with it, you dim and you see the intensity of the light as a continuum because that is the way the brain perceives wavelength, and that is wave intensity, light intensity in the visual spectrum. But if you go to uh, color and you start at one end of the visual colors from red, say going down then in wavelength, and you just put monochromatic lights on one after the other, going from one interval wave length, then you go from what you perceive consciously as red, then yellow, then green, then blue, the primary colors. Now, experiments have shown that when people from radically different cultures are asked to put on a Munsell array, left to right from red to blue, and then starting red again, as shown here, and then the uh, up and down gives you the intensity of the light. If you go transversely and you ask people to identify, and this has been done, just a point on these uh, Munsell array where different colors in their vocabulary exist, then they consistently place them in the areas of the maximum discreteness of the colors in, that is perceived in the brain by the Munsell array. They do not collect them in those areas of the array where the change in our perception of primary colors is occurring from one to the other is occurring more rapidly. So that's a simple little result which shows us that right there, a basic trait of the primate visual system, and we inherited as a primate system, is guiding where we invent our colors and where we place them generally. But what's more interesting, even, is this phenomenon, which has been much discussed and disputed, and I think is relatively soundly based. And that is, as you go from cultures that have just two colors in their vocabulary, uh, and then to cultures that have three, four, five, and so on, across cultures around the world, then the progression is consistently from when there are two to recognize black and white, when there are three, black, white, red, four, they add on green or yellow, five, they add on green and yellow, and so on. 
This is a remarkable phenomenon. There are, uh, now we're talking about if we uh, classify the colors into 11 semantically interchangeable terms for colors, and that would be, say, one-on-one -on -one from one language to the next, one color in one language to the same color, one-on-one -on -one in a different language, and then, or one-on-many, one color in one language to two or more in the other language, and so on, or many to one and recognize then that there are 11 such semantically interchangeable terms, the base set that can be selected in cultures, then it is mathematically possible to have 2,036 pathways in cultural evolution, starting with two terms, black and white, or whatever they are, uh, of the 11, I should say, and going to the full 11, which is what the English language, for example, has, then we find that it's uh, not 2,036 pathways or some number uh, such as that high number. It is 22. So 22 have been followed, and we don't know why. At the next example of epigenetic rules, consider the instinct to avoid incest. Nothing is more fundamental in the evolution of culture than our treatment of incest and our uh, understanding of kinship and of the uh, relationships between the kin and of the dire effects of incest to the first degree. Now, this is easily understood as to what the ultimate cause of the concern with incest and the avoidance of first and even second degree, that is cousins, Incest is practice, but also why. We understand the ultimate uh, reason why. And that is that at those levels, the bringing together of deleterious or outright lethal genes, of which we may have as many as five in each of us on average in heterozygous condition, that the probability of bringing together two of the genes, even if they're very rare in the population, is greatly heightened in first and second degree incest. And that's perceived only by a minority of cultures as connected with anything that they could conceive of as heredity. It is just something we naturally do, is avoid incest. We now know that the key element in that avoidance is the Westermark effect, named after Edward Westermark, a Finnish anthropologist who discovered it a century ago, when two people live in close domestic proximity during the first 30 years in the life of either one, both of them are desensitized. That is, something is turned off to later close sexual attraction and bonding. The Westermark effect has been very well documented now in independent anthropological studies, the classic works done in the alternative marriage system of China where related and unrelated children are brought together at very early age in large numbers, and then the Israeli communes. And the neurobiological mechanics underlie it, however, remain to be studied. What makes the human evidence the more convincing is that all of the non-human primates whose sexual behavior has been closely studied also express the Westermark effect. It's therefore probable as a trait prevailed in the human ancestral line millions of years before the origin of Homo sapiens. Now, in a totally different realm, consider the basis of aesthetic judgment. 
neurobiological monitoring, in particular measurements of the damping wave, a damping of the alpha wave, I should say, during presentations of abstract designs, have shown that the brain is most aroused by patterns in which there is about a 20% redundancy of elements, or put very roughly, the amount of complexity found in a single maze, or two turns of a logarithmic spiral, or an asymmetric cross. Now, if you look at, if you, you are looking at, I presume, these three computer-generated designs of different complexity, degrees of complexity, and whether you are aware of it or not, you are being much more aroused by the middle than you are by one on either side. It may be a coincidence that about the same property is shared by a great deal of art in friezes, in grill work, colophons, logographs, flag designs. Another example is at your feet, if you will look down. It crops up again in the glyphs of ancient Egypt and Mesoamerica, as well as the pictographs of modern Asian languages. For example, here is an interesting one and on the cover of Daedalus, the Journal of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, on, in fact, the brain and the origin of mind and the like, and the artist was asked to predict it abstractly, and sure enough, he picked that level. It is present in, say, ideograms like those of the Japanese language, which the characters of which are just intuitively attractive. They are aesthetic. Moreover, this aesthetic base then became uh, the source of flourishing art of calligraphy. In Japanese culture, here is the ratio style, which uh, was used to give a stern, commanding appearance, impression of strength, especially for plaques and back covers and used uh, in the proclamations, rules, and the like, contrasted with the Wayo style of calligraphy, delicate, elaborate, graceful, used often in correspondence and poetry. And then who can deny the beauty of other Asian languages, for example, Punjabi? And then here it shows up again, and I hope I'm not being selective in evidence. I don't think I am. What we admire in so-called primitive art as, for example, these paddles from the uh, uh, Juca and Saramaka people of uh, Africa. None of this is proof, but the universal nature of this effect, or near universal nature of it, should be considered as suggestive. The theory of the arts right now for the out-of-the-box, innovative, brilliant young or older scientist or humanities scholar who wishes to pursue it the theory of the art awaits its Mendeleev. In other words, a theorist who can combine the theory of the art or a theory of the art with biology as our knowledge of uh, the mind and our perceptions increase. Now, how much do we know about the innate basis of this connection? Not a lot. And certainly very little about the genetics yet and neurobiology in particular of these rules. Not because they've been investigated and have been found lacking, not because it's technically daunting to investigate them, but simply because they haven't been studied. Only recently have researchers begun to ask the right questions within the borderland disciplines. And so bear with me while I move in my remaining minutes a little farther into the subject with more speculation 
or evidence to uh, the range of opportunity in the arts and the other of the great disciplines, the great divisions of, of, of learning. I believe we convey emotion with what students of animal behavior call releasers, or that is simple stimuli that evoke complex response. This approach is part of the discipline of ethology and of the study of social behavior also. Now, I'm showing you a different way to deconstruct art, if I might use that uh, title. The subject is the same in these two paintings by great artists. The ethological or biological related elements to be teased out in such sophisticated works might be by examining the mood, contrasting here the mood conveyed by the preponderance of curving strokes in Cezanne, conveying relatively a relative calm versus the angular strokes of Picasso to evoke tension, maybe even violence. It's response to these elements part of our hereditary rules. I would expect that to be the case. Artists have returned to them faithfully for centuries. In the biologically important part of realm of erotic aesthetics, and I discovered in many years of teaching that uh, the way to snap the students back to attention about two-thirds through the talk is to bring up related, something related to sex and then down come copy of the Daily Crimson, Harvard Crimson and out come the notebooks again. But I meant, you know, what is the nature of it and why is it the way it is? There is then the matter of preferred female facial beauty open to objective analysis and that has in fact begun to be examined by psychologists and published upon in peer-reviewed journals such as Nature and Science. What is the maximally attractive view, and this I believe is cross-cultural to some extent in the testing, it is not the average of the faces from the general population which is shown on the left, which can be readily blended from many randomly chosen young women faces by a computer. It is the average instead of the subset uh, considered most, most attractive intuitively and then blended by computer. And it is noted that the ideal has higher cheekbones and then it's approached to maximum on the right there, a smaller chin, shorter upper lip on average, and wider eyes, all relative to the size of the face. Now, the evolutionary biologist might surmise that these traits are the signs of juvenescence, youth, reproductive potential uh, that is still on the faces of young women, hence relative youth. And this is the Darwinian point, reproductive potential. Now, if all this seems irrational, even absurd, ask any middle-aged professor whose second wife is a graduate student. <laughs> Now let me return quickly to yet another realm which might be, make you less uncomfortable, and that is biophilia, the innate attraction and affiliation people feel with other organisms and especially with the natural world, a concept on which uh, I've spent a lot of time thinking about and working on because of its relevance to um, our understanding of our relation to nature and the possible foundations for a conservation ethic. 
Studies have shown that given, and this is cross-cultural, that given complete freedom to choose the setting of their homes or offices, people gravitate toward an environment which combines three features illustrated here in the Deer Company headquarters in Illinois. I deliberately chose this one because you know, what could be more mundane, technical, and excusably non-aesthetic than the company that makes harvesting or agricultural machinery. Given complete freedom for that, people gravitate toward an environment which combines three features intuitively understood by landscape architects and by real estate entrepreneurs. It is one, that you should be on a height. We're talking about habitation now, basically, on a height. You should look out over a savanna, we call them parkland, and you should be near a body of water. And if you would like a fine example of that, go to any penthouse on Park Avenue and look down on Central Park. People look for two other cross-cutting elements. They want a retreat in which to live and a prospect out to venture into a fruitful terrain in which to forage. And the, in the prospect, when you ask them, when you test it, you see what's actually been done, they want scattered animals, about large animals, as illustrated here, trees with low, nearly horizontal branches. So in short, if you will allow me now to take a deep breath and then plunge where you might not wish to follow, People want to be in the environments in which our species we now know evolved over millions of years, that is, hidden in a copse or against a rock wall, most likely, looking out over savanna and transitional woodland at acacias and other dominant trees of the African environment which fit the ideal. And why not? Is that a strange idea? All mobile animals, animal species that are able to move, have a powerful, often highly sophisticated inborn guide for habitat selection. Why not human beings? And let me just give you a favorite example of mine. One of my favorite animals is a fairy fly. It's a wasp. It is no larger than a couple points you make with the tip of your pen. It has a brain which is almost invisible to the naked eye. And yet, a female adult emerges from eggs which she has parasitized as a larva of aquatic insects on the bottom of bodies of freshwater ponds and streams. And she knows enough to use her wings as paddles to come to the surface, break through the surface, to then search in an area and release pheromones that draw a male mammarid a fly, which has a similar program brain, probably smaller, even inside, <laughs> and mate, and then return to appropriate little body of water, land on the surface. They're too light for the dive in, so they have to dig through the surface tension with their forelegs like a dog digging, go down under the water, and then paddle under the water, searching for the odor of the appropriate egg, uh, the eggs of an appropriate species of aquatic insect, and then lay an egg in it. They do that 
extraordinary feat with, as I said, a brain almost too small to be seen. So why not human beings too? Well, let me say in closing and acknowledge that critics have said and will continue to say that whether the conception of human nature is correct or not, this conception, they say it's impossible. The two major gaps to traverse in the borderland between the natural sciences on one side and the social sciences humanities on the other, that is genes to brain and brain to culture, they say it's just too wide and complex to master. There exists furthermore in this view emergent properties, we hear about those all the time, that can never be reduced analytically. Perhaps their critique continues, these really represent separate epistemology. And I answer that quite the opposite, that the first steps are being taken. Let me just cite in quick passing then, remind you of some of the things that are beginning to happen, are happening, or fare well along now, in the neurosciences, in cognitive psychology. And notice, incidentally, that in the examples that I've given, they've been not strictly biological, you know, biologists coming and interpreting cultural phenomena and human century phenomena. They have uh, come mostly from the social sciences and humanities. So this is not an invasion of the bar barbarians after all. We already are beginning to understand how, this is a, an example from mice, uh, how uh, a single allele, a single change in a gene can lead to a reorganization of the layering in the cortex of the brain, and that behavior then is affected not by just single neurons, but by populations of neurons and by their statistical arrangements and the way the circuits then can or cannot be set up and are most likely to be set up. The MRI mapping of the brain has reached advanced sophistication. And then finally, let me just mention this one, having to do with a lot of different things about human nature and human behavior, and, and then medicine as well, and psychiatry. Uh, it is a circuit uh, that runs from the basal ganglia to the thalamus, which is a, a, a principal relay station for brain circuits, to the prefrontal cortex, the controlling center of thought and decision and culture, and back again to the basal ganglia, the basal ganglia is the center where repetitive perception and response is controlled to a large extent. This circuit, control of and perception and, and production of repetitive behavior to the clearing station, the central relay station of the thalamus, out to the, where the conscious brain is, can be related to many of the cultural universals of rituals, formulaic prayers, ceremonies, incantation, purification rites, movements in stock phrases to ward off harm, and so on, tip too far in the activity, particularly of the basal ganglia. The circuit turns into the pathological condition of obsessive compulsive disorder, OCD, regulated in this current in interpretation it is a key element of human behavior that underlies a great deal of cultural evolution. Once again, it is not too difficult to imagine 
even though we are still far from a complete or satisfactory application, explanation, to imagine the interplay of biological and cultural evolution in normal behavior. Now, I'm well aware that the conception of the biological foundation of complex and social and cultural structure still runs against the grain for a lot of scholars. They object that too few such inherited regularities have yet been found to make the case solid, that much of the brain may be a blank slate, and in any case, they think higher mental processes and cultural evolution are just too complex and shifting and subtle and variable to be encompassed in this way. Reduction, they would say, rips human thought from its context. It is vivisectional. It, is ble it bleeds away the artist's true intended meaning. It melts the gold, the Inca gold of the humanities, and that is unacceptable. But the same was said by the vitalist about the nature of life when the first enzymes and other complex organic molecules were discovered. Oh, that will never really explain any biological process completely. The same was declared about the physical basis of heredity as seen from the early evidence about the ultra-simple DNA molecule as the carrier of the genetic code. I remember so clearly how stunned I was and others when the structure of the DA molecule was announced and the first ideas about how to create a digital code from it laid out. And most recently, doubts about the accessibility of the physical science basis of the mind have begun fading before the successes of the sophisticated imaging techniques and the new models that are constantly being built, combined, torn down, and rebuilt. The value of the consilience program, or renewal of the Enlightenment agenda, if you wish, is that at long last, we appear on both sides of what was the Great Barrier to have acquired at least the means to either to establish the truth of the fundamental unity of knowledge as part of science and the humanities, or to discard the idea, I think we're going to establish it. I predict we're going to establish it soon. The great branches of learning seem destined to meet this way. If so, it will be a historic event that happens only once. And so may we all live long enough to see that fulfilled and enjoy its benefits. Thank you very much. Thanks for tuning in. Can't get enough of Science in the City? Follow us on Twitter or find us on Facebook and let us help you find the science community in your city. Science in the City is a non-profit program of the New York Academy of Sciences. This means we need your continued support to keep bringing you this weekly podcast series as well as the rest of our Science and the City program like our events series and our website. For more information on Academy membership or to support Science in the City today, Log on to scienceandthecity.org. See you next week.